Hi, this is Steve O'Mooney, and you're listening to another production of the 4i Radio Network at 4iRadio.com. Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the 4i Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode number 66 and is being recorded on August 5th, 2016. Today's topic, Star Trek Beyond. I'm Aaron. And I'm Eric. This episode is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit (laughs) revengelover.com. Hello, Eric. Hello, Aaron. It's been a while. It has. So we both have seen Star Trek Beyond, and we figured we, we have. We figured we'd give some people some time to see it before we had this uh, spoil-filled episode. A oh yeah, spoiler-filled episode. T- <laughs> Not spoiled. <laughs> the whole thing is spoiled. It's bad. Uh, <laughs> so let, before we continue, I'm just going to give you this warning. Red alert. All hands to Starfleet Escape Pods. Warning. This is a spoiler-filled episode. You have been warned. So we're going to dive deep into the beyond. But before we do that, let's go to Would You Buy It? So, Eric, this week, would you buy this? Actually, I want to buy this right now. I would buy it as well. You can't buy it yet, but it's available for pre-order. What are we talking about? I can't buy it yet. Why not? Uh, maybe by the time this comes out. What are we talking about? The Star Trek Isolinear Chip Coaster 2-Pack. Pre-order oh, from man. Entertainment Earth for fourteen ninety-nine. Yeah, it says August 2016. I'm looking at Entertainment Earth right now. They also have a LaCars Coaster 2-Pack. But I like these because they actually look like Isolinear Chips. Because it's the clear plastic... It actually looks like it. I'm. I would. I would buy a ton of these. Yep. And you know what? They glow in the dark. Oh my God! You just sold me. <laughs> Even more. Yep. So they are uh, coasters uh, to keep your surfaces moisture-free when you place that. your beverages on the table. They are three and three fourths inches squared. Hey, don't be square. A- <laughs> they're uh, green and they're orange. Well, one's green and one's orange. I would like to see them do a couple others, maybe ones that were more rectangular, like in the show, just as maybe even a prop piece. I don't know. Yeah, I actually have seen online USB thumb drives, but in the shape of isolinear chips. I don't know if it's oh, an right. actual. That's cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I don't know if it's an actual product or if it was just a uh, a product in development, uh, but it's that was pretty cool. So these they have the same number zero one dash twenty four eighty two. Don't know what that that means anything. Yeah, it says you was ones. Yeah, like, but whatever they 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 always have like different ones or whatever. Yeah, so I mean these look they're pretty cool, and uh, I would I would buy this as well. Yeah, actually, this this make a great Christmas present for me. <laughs> wink, wink. To anyone listening out there. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't care. I literally wouldn't care if I got multiples of these. 
Yeah, because it's something that you know you could use. Yeah, I'm imagining you would have more than two people over at a time at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> some point in your life, more than two people will be in your apartment. Uh, or you For might sure. have multiple drinks. Maybe you double fist. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Phrasing. <laughs> Phrasing. <laughs> uh, so let's get into the news. <laughs> so for Star Trek Beyond was officially released, they said that Star Trek Four was coming out. Well, it would, be in <laughs> it would be in development. <laughs> yeah, uh, those are coming. Surprise! We made two movies. <laughs> but Star Trek Four will somehow have Chris. Hemsworth reprising his role as Kirk's dad. I can dig it. I it's it's cool. Just don't know how it would be done. I don't want a time travel movie. I don't either. But it would kind of make sense that the fourth reboot film yeah. would be a time travel with like the fourth original Star Trek movie was a time travel film. Uh, that's true. That'd be definitely following a a trend with these movies. Uh, <laughs> right, right, it, it would be. But I guess this was an, a draft that they originally rejected. for. It, like, this was going to be Star Trek Three originally. Okay. That's what I heard. That whatever this story is, like, I don't know, maybe they saw that, you know, a more Star Trek-y story could work. So mm-hmm. that's why they're bringing this. Well, Chris Hemsworth, he's a popular guy now after that's being... True. Uh, Thor and the Avengers. It's crazy because my fiance didn't recognize that Kirk's dad was Chris Hemsworth until I pointed yeah. out. And then she's like, wait, that's Thor? And I'm like, yeah, that was before he completely before bulked the beard. up. Yeah, before <laughs> the beard and the bulking up. Right. So I think it could work. I would much rather have it maybe be a cameo, not not the whole movie. Right. Maybe some kind of flashback or mm-hmm. you know maybe his dad recorded a message to his unborn son that kirk is only now just getting yeah and, something uh, sorry to interrupt but no. i was thinking that as well a la wesley crusher and jack crusher in the holodeck exactly yeah. so this i mean this could be anything really i mean we haven't really seen time travel in Star Trek in a long time in a movie. So, well, well in a movie like seven years ago, first contact. <laughs> no, it's uh, Star Trek 2009. That was time travel. Oh, well, not really time travel, more like alternate universe plus a little bit of time travel. <laughs> I, Shut I up, get... leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I mean, like, centered around time travel, I guess, is more appropriate to say. I wouldn't mind it, but then again, I don't know what where they're going with this. I think it's too early to really speculate, but I can see why it would make sense to bring back Chris Hemsworth since eight years ago, he's just become this really big star in Hollywood and mm-hmm. a commodity. So that could really bring some more mainstream name to the movie not that they need it i mean everyone in star trek movies is pretty well established right could you have a whales movie with this new cast because that probe is still on its way 
That's true. Feature is on its way too. So yeah, but because now we're much earlier in the, I mean, we're still. I think we're still. Well, wait. When did did they say when this movie takes place? The year was it twenty two sixty three? I'm not sure of the year. Uh, let's let me open up Wikipedia real quick. Because um, at one point I thought they said the star date. Oh, they might. They might have. Oh yeah. Uh, it yeah, said did. Captain's Log, start date 2263.2. So right. we're, so this is Kirk's five-year mission. Well, they're halfway into their five-year mission. So that mm-hmm. means they started in 2261. So the timeline is already, this Kelvin timeline is already five years behind the prime timeline. Mm-hmm. So they're getting a much earlier start. So V'ger and all that stuff will still take place at the same time they did in the prime timeline, just because of the distances involved in stuff in space, but it'll happen like later for them essentially, because in this Kelvin timeline, Kirk is a captain five years before he was, in the prime timeline. You know what I mean? Like everything's yeah, just shifted. Right. But Starfleet is also expanded out further than they did that's, in the original timeline. That's true. So it'll be interesting to see. That's why I kind of like the Kelvin timeline because it's an alternate universe. And mm-hmm. I talked about this when we talked about into darkness, the same events can happen, but differently because of different circumstances. Right. So because of the first movie, because the Narada went back in time and kind of pushed Starfleet to get more militaristic and more expansionist, they found Khan's ship a hell of a lot earlier than they did in the prime timeline. And that just set the course. So yeah, now that Starfleet in the Kelvin timeline is more out there and they've pushed the boundaries a little more. Yeah. I can see them encountering V'ger or the whale probe much earlier than they did in the prime timeline. But so then again, that's, oh. that's what doomsday machine, dude, if they, oh God, I would love to see the star Trek Kelvin movies, like freaking do the doomsday machine. How incredible would that look on the big screen? Oh yeah. That would be intense. Definitely. And then it could, it could, you could have like a quote unquote bad guy without having like an actual bad guy. Like right. the Doomsday Machine would be more of a force of nature. And there you could tell a more Star Trek story with science and figuring out a mystery and where things come from. You don't have mm-hmm. to have like your fourth ultimate bad guy again, which right. is one of my, still one of my problems with these movies, but we'll get into it. Yes. We finally figured out the name of the new CBS Star Trek series. And I actually found out about this right after watching Star Trek Beyond. Mm -hmm. So Brian Fuller announced the Star Trek series would be Star Trek Discovery. And the ship name would be the USS Discovery. NCC-1031. Halloween. What? Yes. <laughs> uh, and the ship design seems to be based on Ralph McQuarrie. His designs from the 70s. 
for the uh, rejected movie and the rejected TV series, Phase 2. Yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, and why the hell haven't you? I don't know why. But the primary hull is very triangular. To me, it almost resembles a Klingon battlecruiser. And then you've got the main dish attached to it. The dish is really cool, or the main, the saucer. Uh, the saucer is really cool because it's got like this kind of turbine kind of looking pattern in the mm-hmm. like middle ring of it surrounding the bridge. I don't know what that's about, but I think that was a cool looking feature. Not only was the ship based on Macquarie's designs, but also the promo because Ralph Macquarie had a art shot that the Enterprise was coming out of an asteroid. Mm-hmm. And the promo replicated that asteroid and kind of like these techie bits on the side almost mm-hmm. perfectly. So it was almost like his concepts just entirely come to life. For those people who thought that the CGI wasn't great, there was later interviews that said that it was still a work in progress, that basically they put together a trailer for San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And so this may not be the final detailed ship. So the C- yeah, so the CGI is still in, in the works. Right. So uh, what do you think of the design? I'm, I'm still on the fence about it. I do think it's a bold design choice that we haven't seen. To me, it's almost too bold. Like, it really doesn't fit that lineage that we've seen uh, right. in Star Trek. But On screen, I, anyway. On screen, right. And I don't necessarily... I mean, we none of us know what the story is going to be. But mm-hmm. the Klingon aspect, like, just the, that triangular hull really intrigued me. And if you listen to the promo, like, right at the end, when they're, you know, doing the words or whatever... I don't know if it was just me, but if you listen to that promo, the last five seconds has that decloaking sound effect. Hmm, interesting. Like, I know the decloaking sound effect. Like, that is a very distinct sound effect. And when I heard that, I was wondering if that was like a hint at possibly the story. So in my kind of like guessing fandom moment right now, I could see based on the design of the ship that maybe it's some kind of federation Klingon hybrid Mm. type of design Um, and that maybe this is Starfleet's first ship with cloaking like maybe it's a section 31 type of thing you know maybe they're in some kind of undercover mission with the Klingons but I don't know I think the name Discovery it hints at what the story is going to be about it's very interesting you say uh, what you're saying, because when I was uh, in middle school, I created a Federation Klingon hybrid really? uh, with a triangular hull, but inversed. I only did top-down design because I was in middle school, but right. it was a uh, triangle with the smaller end being the back, and the saucer was more of a oval shape. Mm-hmm. And it was, I'm going to save the name for when we uh, get to uh, Subspace Channel's question, but okay. uh, I'll, ju- I'll just leave it at that. So the Heroes and Icons TV network is now showing all five live action Star Trek series weeknights 
and Sunday night. And you can check it out at heroesandiconstv.com slash all Star Trek. I'm going there right now. Yeah, the website's actually pretty cool. I don't know if I get this channel. It's an over-the-air channel. You can check on the website if... Oh, for uh, your local affiliate or whatever? uh, Yeah. Whoa! Like, if you scroll on this series or this page, Mm -hmm. that's an interesting Star Trek Enterprise logo I've never seen before. Like, the font is all weird. I don't know where they got that. When it shows all four captains. All four captains. So which... uh... Or all five captains. Yep. Look at Enterprise. Oh, whoa. <laughs> I told you. Yeah. I didn't realize what you what you meant. That's that is interesting. Um I've well, never like, seen I that. don't I don't hate it, but it's I've never seen that before. <laughs> yeah, it's like they took uh the next gen and but it's even different than the next gen font. Right. It's like they took styling. It looks like a NASA font. That's what it looks like. It looks like the NASA font. Mm. Like the the actual Enterprise where it says Enterprise, that's right. that's I think the font of the original. Or no, no, it's not even that cuz it was a uh, no, so I don't know what this is. I don't know where they got that. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I I didn't actually didn't notice that until you brought it up. Cuz I'm a nerd. <laughs> Oh, uh, so for me, this airs over the air on um, Me TV here in Chicago. Oh, okay. So now that I know that, but oh, then again, I have Netflix, so I can watch that's, whenever I want. That's true. Uh, I actually, it says that there's a Boston affiliate, but it's being transmitted out of New Hampshire, and it doesn't actually reach Boston. Oh, boo! <laughs> so, oh well. Oh, well, right now they have uh, Xena, Warrior Princess, and Hercules going on right now. Oh, no, that's tomorrow. No, that's oh, to- that's today. Oh, uh, uh-huh. And then, oh, 11 p.m. tonight, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Vortex. And then midnight is Star Trek Voyager, Heroes and Demons. And then 1 a.m. is my favorite... Enterprise episode, Silent Threshold? Enemy. Oh, wait. You said Silent Enterprise. Enemy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but it says, it's this is weird. So this website is weird. I don't know where they're getting their information. It says Star Trek Enterprise, and the name of the episode is Silent Enemy, but in parentheses it says, a.k.a. Call to Arms. It's never been called Call to Arms. Where the hell are they getting this? interesting was there a overseas was it called something different maybe <laughs> i don't know well if i'm up that late maybe i'll watch this yeah why not anywho pretty right. cool stuff yeah definitely exciting time to be alive so let's uh, get into the topic star trek beyond so uh 966 days into its five-year mission that was a nice touch because that's referencing September 1966, mm-hmm. which was when Star Trek came out. Uh, the USS Enterprise arrives at Starbase Yorktown to replenish its dwindling supplies while the crew takes shore leave. Um, but before that, this summary doesn't include uh, the teaser or the oh. opening to the movie. 
Uh, yeah, right. Where yeah. Kirk is like negotiating with an alien species, mm-hmm. and he's looking up at them like this. It's this big tribunal almost, and you're like, oh man, Kirk's really getting into it with these aliens. He's trying to present an artifact from another culture to grant peace between the two cultures. Mm-hmm. And somehow they are just supremely insulted and he doesn't know what's going on. And all of a sudden they start attacking him and only to find out we as the audience, it was like a forced perspective shot. So all these big aliens that we thought were huge are actually these like little tiny, like one foot tall guys <laughs> and they're all piling on Kirk and he gets beamed up and he actually gets beamed up with like one or two of them. Um, mm-hmm. And they cut, they they're trying to get captured by the rest of the crew. Um, and it's funny cause his short, his shirts torn and he's like, Oh no, I, I torn another shirt. Yeah. And <laughs> which was, I, I actually laughed in the theater. I went, ha. like, cause I mean, <laughs> Kirk is always tearing his shirt up mm-hmm. in the original series. So right. I thought that was funny. And then, Basically, he hands the artifact back to Spock, who mm-hmm. puts it in storage. So that's that's kind of like a big plot point. So right. I don't know why this summary skipped it. What did you think of that I, scene? Oh, man, it was <laughs> the highlight of the movie, I think. <laughs> that scene was uh, probably one of the best scenes of the movie, I think. Really? I love that scene. Did you love the movie? Because there, there were greater parts of it. <laughs> I, I thought that was such an awesome scene, though. I, it was funny. It was. It, 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 felt, was. Uh, it felt like... Uh, it captured it the spirit there. of the original series. Yeah, exactly. It, it, was, it was great. Because it had the humor that I wasn't expecting. Like, as mm-hmm. soon as those guys, like started raining down on Kirk and you find out they're like a foot tall. I was, I was cracking up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love this. It. Great. So they head to Starbase Yorktown to replenish their supplies halfway through their five-year mission. So the crew starts talking and struggling to find continued meaning in his duties as captain. And he's also affected by the thoughts of the death of his father, George Kirk, uh, James C. Kirk applies for promotion to vice admiral. So basically, he wants a desk job. Um, let's talk about Starbase Yorktown a bit. Sure. I thought it is one of the most gorgeous Star Trek locations in the history of the franchise. I need to see a diagram of this, of, of the station, because I had a hard time uh, with... Um, the layout of the station. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can see that, but I thought it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I did. Uh, I thought it was cool uh, that, you know, it's, it's artificial. It's, it's like a snow globe in space, I guess. Yeah. So there's obviously some kind of uh, shielding or, you know, really strong transparent aluminum or or something, but (laughs) right. No, I mean, I'm looking at it at memory alpha and, I love the concept because it basically looked like an atom, like a diagram of an atom or something. And you have all these intersecting rings, which are also habitat rings, 
which also serve as like docking ports that starships can fly into, which mm -hmm. I thought was amazing. Like, and we'll get into it later in the movie, but I thought all of the stuff where the ships are like inside the space station with these rings, I thought it was a really cool concept. Like, it looks gorgeous. It's a very sci-fi concept, the station. Yeah, and it was very, like, it's it's not like any other star base we've seen in Star Trek, mm -hmm. but I kind of like that. It was very unique, and it makes you think that, obviously, they have technology so far beyond where we're at right now that something that looks impossible to us is as we saw on in this movie is very commonplace for the citizens of the federation right and i i really enjoyed it i really liked that starship or starbase mm -hmm. i liked all the shots when they established uh when the enterprise was docking uh, they had a lot of establishing shots of of the starbase and you almost got to see the day-to-day -day lives of the people living on it. Uh, mm -hmm. You saw like a little alien kid. You saw some alien guy step into a transporter booth to right. go to work. Like, yeah, that was cool. That was yeah. very cool. Like all that little stuff that, you know, we don't get to see a lot of in Star Trek, like the civilian life. So yeah, I mean, I liked it. Do they have uh, transporter booths like we used to have telephone booths? Mm -hmm. Just set up. People can dial into where they want to go and, and beam there. Yeah. And so we get to see the crew kind of pair off, too, once they get off the ship. Apparently, Spock and Uhura are dealing with a timeout in their relationship. <laughs> yep. Which, like, I'm glad that their relationship has carried through these th uh, three movies. But if you think about it, I mean, they've been going out for like five years or something at this point. Right. And yeah, so I, I thought it was, I thought it was strange. Like they, they didn't fight or anything like that. It was just kind of like a, we need a break. And yeah. I remember that it was a funny line with uh, Bones, like about getting dumped. Uh, yeah. When she... <laughs> When she says it's it's me, not you, it's you. Yeah, yeah. Something and, along those lines. And Spock was like very confused about that, which I thought was hilarious. And also, this is the scene early on in the movie where we get to see Sulu reunite with his husband and their young daughter, which turns out to be Demora Sulu. Yeah, I thought that scene was well done. Nothing over the top like we discussed in our other episodes. Yeah. Just you know, something that happens. And I also thought it was kind of funny that Chekhov, you start to see Chekhov in this movie with a bunch of different ladies. <laughs> and I feel like in my kind of headcanon or whatever, I think that Chekhov maybe is kind of worshiping Kirk a little bit too much or trying to be like him, like yeah. his mentor. And <laughs> so now Chekhov is trying to be like the ladies man, like Kirk. So I thought that was kind of funny. And we actually see at one point in the movie, I don't know if it's, I don't remember if it was in this opening, but Chekhov gets like pushed out of a room and there's an Orion and she kind of tosses his clothes back at them. When I saw that in, because I think there's a trailer that showed it, I thought that was Kirk. But um, in the movie, 
you clearly see that it's Chekhov. Mm. And I thought that was pretty hilarious. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't recognize it as uh, who it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. Yeah, it must have been Chekhov. <laughs> That's funny. So, there's another line when Kirk's delivering his captain's log where he says that things have become a little episodic, uh, which is a nice nod mm-hmm. to the television nature of Star Trek. Right. And a little bit about his uh, vice admiralcy or his application for to be a, uh, an admiral. Yeah. That's something that happened in the prime timeline as well. Yeah. And it's interesting to note those parallels because, you know, with Kirk talking to Bones about his dad mm-hmm. almost felt like the talks that he had with Bones in the original movies about getting older and, you know, dealing with these issues. So I like how much the two universes are still vibing with each other. Like, mm-hmm there's still things there's common threads that are still going to happen. I just think for Kirk, it's a little, he's a little bit too young to be a vice admiral. Oh, he was too young to be a captain. Well, yeah. (laughs) So I, I feel he definitely needs to still grow into that captain role. And, you know, through this movie, you know, we find out that, you know, he still does want to be a captain. And I don't know if you caught this, but the Commodore that, is in control of the Yorktown. Uh, that's her name is Commodore Paris, which is a nod yeah. to like Tom Paris because Tom Paris said that he comes from a long line of Starfleet career officers. Mm. So was she a descendant of Tom Paris? And I, I want to think yes. Hmm. I have no qualms with that. Yeah. If, so, if that's true. Very cool little tidbits when you watch this movie. Like, if you're a, a diehard Trekkie, or even if you've watched some of these, like, you start to pick up on things that mm-hmm. kind of hint at uh, little Easter eggs and stuff. Also, when they're on the station, Spock actually finds out that Ambassador Spock has died. And yeah, I thought it was a touching scene. He gets passed on Spock's belongings. And there's a shot where he's on the space station and he's just kind of like looking off into the distance and it, and he's holding the pad that says that Spock died. Like there's no words there, but I thought it was very touching. And to be honest, I actually teared up a little bit when I saw Nimoy's face Mm. on there. And I thought it was a a nice tribute. Um, There's also an even better tribute uh, later on in the movie, but uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. I also want to touch on the reason why, maybe that comes up later, uh, but the reason why Spock is kind of taking a break with uh, Uhura directly involves his prime uh, yes. universe, uh, Spock. Yes. Well, here's the thing. He was already thinking about this mm-hmm. before he knew that Spock died. Right, um, because Spock feels that because Vulcan was destroyed, he has more of a duty to his people and his culture than to Starfleet. Right, which I think is, I mean, that's that's logical if you think about Vulcans. It would be logical for Spock to give up his Starfleet career 
to focus on the needs of the many, mm-hmm. you know, to, to quote a phrase. Right. So later on, uh, an escape pod is found drifting um, out of a nearby nebula, and its occupant, uh, who's named Kalara, uh, claims her ship is stranded on the planet Ultimid, uh, which is located past the dangerous unexplored nebula that blocks communications with Starfleet. Uh, Kirk actually volunteers the Enterprise for the rescue mission, and they get through the nebula with some difficulty. But they eventually arrive at Ultimid, uh, which Spock finds to be a sparsely populated Class M world. Uh, I want to touch a little bit upon that nebula. To me, that wasn't a nebula. That was just a very dense asteroid field. Like, am I the only one that thought that? Mm. I actually don't remember what the nebula looked like. Uh, maybe there was no nebula. Was, <laughs> yeah. it, it, was, it was basically just a bunch of rocks that were close together. Like, yeah. To me, that is a meteoroid field, not a nebula. That's not what a nebula is. Right. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe the gases were uh, in the... No, nope. watch the movie again. There, there were no gases. It was like no, straight up rocks. This, this is it maybe the light that's being emitted from these gases uh, are not in the our visual range. Maybe it's a different kind of nebula. That could be. But to me, I was thinking, this isn't a nebula. <laughs> this is a freaking asteroid field. I'm, I'm just trying to uh, yeah. come up with something logical. But uh, interesting, a plot device that Star Trek has used before, a nebula where communications are blocked. Oh God, that's happened in like, it seems like every movie, even in Insurrection. Insurrection, the the Briar Patch. The Briar Patch, uh, Nemesis with the, uh, I forget the, the. No, I know what you're saying. um, Uh, The Matara Nebula in The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Yeah. Senses were out. Best of both worlds. We have the Enterprise hiding in a nebula. Yeah. Very, very popular with Star Trek, I guess. (laughs) So, um, not long after their arrival, the Enterprise comes under attack from a swarm of thousands of small, heavily armed alien ships. Kirk orders a counterattack, but the Enterprise is overwhelmed by the enemy's sheer volume and strength, and the ship's navigational deflector and warp nacelles are destroyed within minutes god that was i i'm not too in love with the kelvin timeline enterprise mm-hmm. but seeing any enterprise destroyed like that is very heartbreaking right it probably the most violent destruction of an enterprise we've ever seen yeah that ship got beat to hell and when those enemy ships concentrated on the deflector dish and that thing just tore apart. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing shot. Props to the effects team because that was beautiful. It was a great sequence. But man, when they took out that deflector dish, I was like, "Oh shit!" Like <laughs> this is bad, right? And then you know you got Scotty in the engine room. Like they're they're trying to compensate. They're trying to get away. You know, he Kirk orders. Uh, the warp nacelles to go, like, to go to warp speed. And then the enemies just, I mean, the warp nacelles are just gone. 
Like, right. they get torn off at the pylons, and they're just, like, drifting off into space. And I love the desperation that Simon Pegg uh, played uh, Montgomery Scott because Scotty's, like, he's, like, the Warner cells are just gone, Kip. Like, he yeah. doesn't even know what to think. Like, they're just gone. And you could tell he was completely heartbroken as an engineer. I mean, it's his... It's his ship, you know? Yeah, those ample nacelles were... were <laughs> they gone. were amply destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so with the Enterprise crippled and helpless, uh, several of the attacking ships latch on, and boarding parties uh, start to roam the ship, commanded by the Swarm's leader, Crawl. Crawl uh, and his soldiers, who, now that... Now that we know about the movie, um, mm -hmm. you know, all the drones and, you know, because he really only has a small crew. Yeah. I think the rest of those soldiers were basically just robots. That's what I was thinking, too, because they all looked identical. And, and there was a very robotic movement to them. Mm. I could tell some of them were CGI uh, just in the way that they were walking around. Yeah, but I think that was intentional to make it seem like yeah, those are just robots, because yeah. Crawl's crew, there's only a handful of them. There's like two or three or four minor characters that were actually from his former crew, which we'll get into. Yes. So they make their way to the ship's vault, like we saw in the uh, opening of the movie, and on the way there, Crawl captures and drains the life force from several Enterprise crew members, leaving them as weathered husks. And that was a very creepy effect. Oh, yeah. That was terrifying. It almost reminded me of the Borg in a way. The Borg, uh, salt vampire. Yeah, exactly. Which, hey, yeah. that's another type of Easter egg. But yeah. yeah, very similar effect with like the draining husk of a person. It was just, it was creepy. Yeah, um, definitely. Scotty attempts to restore power to the ship's impulse drive by feeding it from the warp core, but Crawl orders the swarm to resume its attack. They destroy the next section of the Enterprise, separating the saucer and engineering hulls, and leaving the saucer powerless due to Scotty's jury rigging, leaving no way of switching over to the saucer's reserve power without a separation. Spock and McCoy are actually stuck in a turbo lift car that is ejected into space mm. and then captured by a swarm craft. But they manage to get into the craft and overpower its occupants. That was such a cool sequence. Yeah. And it goes along with what we've seen of um, turbo lifts in other series. Like they're self contained modules. So, mm. in the case of what just happened, with Spock and McCoy, they can still survive for an extended period. True, but there's probably very limited oxygen. Well, yeah, and I get that, but still, they th there could yeah, be enough cool. time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's lucky that it was airtight. Well, of course, otherwise they'd be in some serious Crap. mess. Yeah, <laughs> I like that McCoy and Spock work together to kind of pilot this ship. <laughs> right. It, it was very funny. And I like that freaking 
uh, McCoy was the one driving it. Like, he just seemed like the most unlikely person to do that of the of everyone. Of the two, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess Spock was was he aiming phasers, or do they have to do it in tandem? They had to do it in tandem because I think Spock was doing the weapons at that point. Yeah. Okay. And he was trying to like read the computer of what was going on. Um, but yeah, this God, we saw this crazy attack, and it just it sheared the Enterprise in half. So you got the saucer, but still with like half the neck hanging on. <laughs> right. Um, and Kirk knows that uh, he still has to separate the neck from the saucer to do a proper saucer separation. Mm -hmm. So crawl arrives at the ship's vault, Uh, but Kirk already got to the artifact first and he actually gives it to Ensign Sill uh, before ordering the crew to abandon ship. Uh, Sill was the, she's the one with like that crazy crab. Yeah. Very interesting alien. Yeah. Very, very cool alien. So, what actually ends up happening in that fight sequence, you know, Kirk was trying to disengage uh, or engage the saucer separation by like folding in some levers and crawl starts beating him up. And meanwhile, the whole saucer is tumbling into the atmosphere of ultimate and you have Ahura like seeing Kirk and, while they're distracted fighting, she's the one that actually starts finishing the procedure. Mm-hmm. But they actually get, they literally get separated. Uh, Crawl is on Uhura's side and she manages to actually separate and Kirk's stuck on the saucer section. And there's kind of that look between them. Like, you know, Kirk's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get you. I'll, I'll find you. But I, that was cool because we actually get to see, even though it's not separating from the main hull of the ship, we do get to see a saucer separation, which right. in the original series, the Enterprise wasn't meant to do that, but it could with like all these explosive bolts or whatever. But the saucer separation would be more prevalent in the next generation. As the separated uh, engineering hull begins to disintegrate, uh, most of the crew escape in Kelvin pods. So mm-hmm. because the Kelvin did not have escape pods uh, on the bridge, the escape pods on the bridge are named after the Kelvin incident, which I thought was also a nice touch. Definitely. Um, but whenever the pods are launched, the swarm ships capture them and drag them back to the planet. Scotty actually... Uh, fires himself out of the ship in a photon torpedo casing, which I thought was, that was a very cool moment and kind of tie back uh, to other Star Trek series where we've seen that a photon torpedo casing can be used not only as a coffin, but also as an emergency escape vehicle if needed. Right. Well, we saw ambassador. uh, What's it? Kalar. Kalar. Yes. She traveled in interstellar space just in a... uh, She had the same type of breathing mass that Scotty did. Right. Uh, Like, is that, like, an option? Like, can they, (laughs) like... (laughs) (laughs) I think they need that. Like, that's... (laughs) (laughs) No, I know they need that to live (laughs) in the the casing. But, I mean, is that, like, just... 
laying around where they can just like take out the uh, warhead and put in uh, environmental uh, life support system? I don't know. So the the saucer gets detached from the neck. Uh, Kirk gets back to the bridge, which is now occupied only by Sulu, Chekhov, uh, Kalara, and a few other crewmen. However, Chekhov reports that the saucer is too badly damaged to keep in orbit and will crash within minutes. Kirk orders the remaining crew to abandon ship uh, once it enters the atmosphere. Kirk is actually the last to leave the Enterprise, and I thought that was a nice shot from inside his pod, where you see the the saucer start to crash onto the planet. And man, that broke my heart. Like just, uh, that was hard to watch. Yeah. And, and people were saying it, it reminded them of the enterprise D, uh, saucer crash. I was not expecting that when, when it, when they showed it actually crashing into the planet and he saw the trees getting ripped up and stuff. I immediately thought of generations. I mean, that was, that was another callback. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that was pretty cool. So yeah, the moments later, the saucer does crash into the mountain range, um, and it kind of embeds itself into the planet, which is crazy. Uh, then we focus back on Scotty, um, who has landed and in a great sequence, he saves himself from getting, uh, you know, from his pod crashing off of a cliff. Right. Uh, like, I thought that was a really good effect shot. Yeah, very uh, dramatic. Yeah. So we were hanging around with Scotty for a bit. He's finding other uh, pods and kind of scavenging pieces. Uh, but all of a sudden, these, like, three big burly alien dudes uh, start harassing him. And, uh, you know, he's he's trying to get ready for a fight. But all of a sudden... Uh, Jayla shows up and she kicks their asses. <laughs> yeah. And she uses some interesting technology. She uses like a kind of like a holographic projector that can mm-hmm. project multiple versions of herself, uh, which she uses in the fight as a distraction. Scotty is grateful that she saved them. He's also surprised that she understands English. Um, right. And then they kind of introduce themselves. She calls him Montgomery Scotty, uh, which, which I thought was hilarious. Like, I think, wh- what are your thoughts of Jayla? Just her initial impression. Uh, hmm. So I really liked the character when I saw her. I, I knew she was going to be on the side of the Federation, or yeah. at least friendly with, with the Starfleet officers there, because... You know, she's on the bridge with them in the promos. Yeah. Uh, uh, I thought she she was cool. Very A very strong female character that we don't see too often. Yeah, and I think the movie definitely needed another strong female character. You know, not just Ahura. Mm-hmm. But we have, we in this movie, we do see more, a lot more female crew members. I mean, yeah. Sylph, for one. You know, Kalara, who... Um, we'll get to in a bit, but yeah. So she, Jayla actually takes Scotty to her makeshift home, which she discovers to be the wreckage of the USS Franklin, which went missing almost 100 years ago. Uh, meanwhile, the swarm 
craft hijacked hijacked by Spock and McCoy crash lands on the planet, but that badly injures Spock and forces McCoy to perform some very hasty surgery in order to save his life. This is where we get the horse line. <laughs> right. Which I thought was funny. Like, and that that's that kind of reminds me that's another callback. Uh, because in what was it? In the voyage home, Spock swears. He's like, well, a double dumbass. T- well, no, that's Kirk. But that's doesn't Kirk, Spock yeah. swear? I thought Spock. Um, yeah, because uh, well, Kirk says he he tells him like that's what people do, and uh, he swears I think to uh, Doctor uh, Doctor <laughs> Kirk's love interest there, uh, Doctor Jillian Taylor. There we go. And he That's, swears to her. Yeah, yeah. I think he says something like, they're not your damn wheels. Or, yeah, or yeah. Like so, so it's funny because that's another callback of like this this type of swearing in Star Trek. Because it's it's not done a lot. You know, we'll get, you know, Data saying <laughs> Like, oh, sh-. Or, yeah. you know, something like that. But it doesn't happen a lot. Um, yeah. But, man... It was brutal for Spock because he had this huge piece of shrapnel in his stomach, which uh, Bone says is actually very close to the Vulcan heart. Mm. So I, I thought that was uh, pretty good. And then we get to see uh, Bones do some, uh, you know, bare skin knives and whatever type of medicine. Yeah. Right. Uh, where he modifies an enemy phaser to basically uh, heat up a piece of metal from the ship wreckage and basically carterize Spock's wound. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some funny moments there. So back to the summary, uh, Crawl has, has, has captured everyone left on the Enterprise. Crawl uh, demands the artifact, and he threatens to kill Sulu if he does not get it. There's some... Because he captured Uhura, there's some dialogue there, and, you know, Crawl's, you know, basically counting on Kirk to find him as though he's, like, part of his part of his plan. Because he wants to find this artifact. So when Crawl threatens everyone, the crew of the Enterprise, uh, Sill... Uh, actually relents and gives Crawl the artifact, uh, which we found that Kirk hid in in her skull because her skull opens up like a weird crab type of thing. Yeah, and and there's the artifact. But great, great makeup. Oh I yeah, that was a really cool effect and very unique, interesting alien. So then we go back to Kirk and Chekhov, who have found each other and they've paired off. They find Kalara, but Kirk immediately does not trust her, and they force her to admit that she lured the Enterprise into a trap. Uh, she claims that Crawl promised to return her crew in exchange for the Enterprise and her own crew. So they use their tricorders, uh, but they find out they have insufficient range to locate the rest of the crew. So they beam aboard or they board the crash saucer in order to use its sensors. And Kirk pretends to go retrieve the artifact only for Kalara to turn on him and reveal that her crew 
never existed. And she's been in league with Crawl from the very start. Uh, fortunately, Kirk seen through her, her plan, and Chekhov rescues him as more of Crawl's troopers arrive. Uh, outnumbered and trapped, Kirk ignites the fuel tank for the saucer's maneuvering thrusters, which allow them to escape, but it also causes the saucer to flip over, which kills Kalara and the troopers in the process. <laughs> that was and a very it, interesting scene. That I thought that was a great action scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're running through the damaged uh, corridors of the Enterprise's saucer. So there's like big chunks of the saucer missing and they have to jump over these chasms in a way. Mm-hmm. And all the meanwhile, when these thrusters go off, now the, now the hallways are turning upside down and they're basically running on the walls of the saucer. I thought it was a very great, it was very great uh, effects work too, because the camera would pull out of one section of the saucer and go to another part of the saucer where the action's happening. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting sequence. And then Kirk and Chekhov burst the bridge window and are sliding down the saucer as it's, like, flipping over, and Kalara and the troops start following them. And then just as it's about to flip over, the momentum kind of throws Kirk and Chekhov very far, Kalara kind of like stands on this cliff where she landed and the saucer completely flams her and explodes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's Kirk, funny cause she's like looking up like uh, crap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then because the explosion Kirk and Chekhov just get flown out of there. Like I thought that was some great pyrotechnics work. Yeah. So after discovering that the alien artifact originated from the planet, Spock reveals to McCoy that he is reconsidering his place in Starfleet after Spock Prime's death. Uh, The two are then attacked by the swarm, only to be saved by Scotty, who has repaired the Franklin's transporter system. That was funny, funny scene. It was. <laughs> yeah, all these enemy ships are like flying into Spock and McCoy's position and they're having like this heart to heart and Spock says something like, well, you, you know, I'll, I'll never leave you, doctor. And then, and then <laughs> McCoy's there and he's like, oh, well, that's just typical. And yeah. he thinks he's going to be uh, shot and he's like, oh, you green-haired son of a bitch. And... <laughs> So I thought I thought that was great. Definitely. Well, Kirk and Kirk and Chekhov are roaming through the woods, and they come across one of Jayla's traps, which basically freezes them in amber. Scotty finds them with Jayla. They deactivate it, and that was pretty funny. So they all get to the Franklin, and they start to formulate a plan to infiltrate Crawl's base. Jayla is initially fearful of this, remembering the death of her family at the hands of Crawl and his people, but Scotty and Kirk are able to persuade her to help out. As Crawl departs for Starbase Yorktown, the Quintet rescues the crew before repairing the Franklin and setting a course for Starbase Yorktown. Wow, they are really glancing over a lot of that stuff in the middle of the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of discussions. Like, I, I really like how Jayla uh, connects with the crew 
I like that the team comes together to start pairing the Franklin. Yeah, so it just, like, like it makes sense. And there's a, that whole sequence of Kirk rescuing the crew from Crawl's camp. And they use all of the stuff that Jayla has on hand, the holographic emitters, the gel, freezing gel. Right. So I, I really loved the whole sequence on that part of the movie because there's actually a reason for the motorcycle. It was, right. it was on the Franklin. And Kirk even says, oh, wow, you know, my dad had one of these. This is a classic. So there's, there was precedence in it. I know when the first trailer came out, everyone, including myself, was criticizing that. I was like, God, that's such a dumb thing. But when you see the actual movie, it makes sense. The Franklin is a ship from 100 years ago. It's more worn and dirty. Like, the crew had their own personal items on the ship, including this antique motorcycle. And the motorcycle was in the mess hall, which to me means it was more of like a display piece, like someone's hobby piece that they were building. Right. I really like the interior of the Franklin. Like there's a lot of, mm. like it felt very much like Enterprise. Uh, mm. The ship even looked like the NX-01. It says it was the first to go to Warp 4, which if you actually look at the dates of, you know, between Enterprise and the other warp tests, it's actually possible that the Franklin was commissioned about 20 years before the Romulan War. So 10 years before Enterprise's time. So could it have been the first warp four ship, like Scotty says? Yeah, absolutely. And it does look even less advanced than the NX-01. So... I'll definitely give it a pass. Like, um, and they even say, and and we'll get into it, but uh, yeah, we'll get into it. So, okay. No, I do like that whole rescue sequence. And I like that they're using everyone's talents. They've got Scotty manning the transporter. They've got Spock and McCoy helping to get the people out of there. You know, they've got Chekhov and Sulu repairing the ship. Kirk's making his daring rescue and it makes sense because they use the motorcycle because the sensors wouldn't detect them. And there was a hole in the shielding. So they needed a distraction while they're beaming everyone out of there. And Kirk provided the ultimate distraction, I thought. So I ended up to me, I actually ended up enjoying that sequence more than I thought I would. Mm. What about you? I like that sequence. I personally, I didn't have any issues with the motorcycle in the trailer. So having... I did because I was like, "Ooh, Justin Lin, damn you!" <laughs> I thought it was cool. I actually, um, before the movie came out, I saw <clears throat> online a diagram of the the Franklin. They pointed to where the motorcycle was in the mess hall, and they pointed to a few other things. Uh, okay. So I was okay with it before going into actually seeing it on screen. Okay. And I thought the, the sequence was really cool. Uh, like, like that gel stuff was cool. How he was able to like, kind of like just go in a circle and like encompass the whole crew so that, uh, to protect them from, on them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, it was, that was pretty sweet. 
It, yeah. it was. Yeah, it was definitely <clears throat> very enjoyable. I liked it. Yeah. So once everyone is saved, they repair the Franklin, and they... <laughs> The way they have to launch the Franklin was crazy because it yeah. basically needed an escape velocity reboot. And they essentially drive it off a cliff <laughs> to right. launch it to, to attain escape velocity speeds. A uh, very cool sequence. Uh, they finally get in orbit. Scott and McCoy beam aboard an attacking drone ship and they discover a way to disrupt the drone's cohesion because the drones are basically like a beehive. It's a swarm controlled by uh, a computer program. So it allows the Franklin to destroy as much of the drone fleet using discordant noise on a very high frequency, which basically is VHF. So it's provided by Jayla's collection of classical late 20th century music that was already on board the Franklin and it ends up being beastie boys. Yeah. I thought it was hysterical that they referred to it as classical music. Cause like McCoy's they're like, <laughs> I think it was McCoy who said, is that classical music? And Spock goes, I believe it is. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, music from 400 years ago, we think of as classical music. So right. it's kind of funny that it got turned around like that in Star Trek. And I love when Kirk says, nice choice. Yeah. Because it ties back to the first movie mm-hmm. when he played that song on uh, his uncle's car that he drove off the cliff. Right. Sabotage. Right. And I love that moment in the sequence when, you know, they're flying over the drone ships and they're all exploding in range of that VHF signal. And there's that one point sabotage where it goes, and it like, it like matched up with this huge explosion uh, in the fleet. Like the timing of the music was perfect. I thought that was another fun sequence. So crawl manages to board the Starbase Yorktown. And at this point, he's looking less like he did in the beginning. He's looking more human. Yeah. So as he prepares to deploy the bioweapon, it leads a chase through the base, which eventually culminates in the Franklin and the few remaining swarm ships uh, to crash near the Starbase's central control complex. So the Franklin makes its way into the Starbase through those tunnels that we saw the Enterprise fly in earlier. And there's this cool sequence because the arms of the station, like those pools in the middle, are actually one-way ports out of that tube because there's like a force field there. So smaller ships can fly right through and into the city. And that's what the swarm ship starts doing. But they steer the Franklin into one of the bigger pools and it just, it flies out. And McCoy with all of his amazing driving at this point, even though he kind of screws up a bit, he's able to direct the remaining swarm ships right into the bottom of the Franklin saucer before it crashes. So I thought that was another great idea and it was a great sequence. Yeah. A lot of action 
in this movie, which is good. It was good action. It was good action, but it also has a good story. Right. So as they look for Crawl, Ahura learns from the ship's logs that his real name is Balthazar Edison, and he was the captain of the Franklin before its disappearance. After being declared missing in action, Edison became disillusioned with the Federation and went insane from using the planet's alien technology to prolong his life. Kirk and Crawl slash Edison, who now has a stolen command division uniform, and he's reverted to a mostly human appearance after draining the life force from several more Enterprise crew members to heal the injuries he suffered in the crash, they confront each other in the life support hub and fight an anti-gravitational battle that ends with Edison and the bioweapon being flushed into space where Edison is devoured by the bioweapon. Kirk is rescued from the same fate by Spock and McCoy in their hijacked drone. But going back to that, there is a great sequence, that sequence where Kirk and Krull are fighting, and there's moments where they talk to each other. We find out that Edison was a Mako officer, Mm -hmm. which... If you're a fan of Star Trek Enterprise, there was Mako stationed in seasons three and four on the Enterprise. And right. they're, they're the military assault command operations. And basically they are the army of... Or the Marines. Starfleet, or the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. And Crawl or Edison, he even says, he sees, I've seen the horrors of the Zindi War, the Romulan War, I survived all that. You know, he, there's a speech where he says, you know, you know, we, we fought for our battles and and we've died and he lost so many people. And that's why when he was given the Franklin, which was turned from an earth starship into, you know, an actual Federation Starfleet, because this was, since it was a hundred years, that would place it at 21 63, which would be only two years after the forming of the Federation. Mm. So at that point, when he's stranded on this planet, you know, they're soup out in really deep space at this time. That's why I think Edison went crazy and disillusioned because he has all this hate for the Federation because they didn't do anything for him. He sacrificed his friends, his family, fighting in these conflicts that gave birth to the Federation. He basically thinks the Federation is weak and just disrespected him and didn't, and just left him there to die. Yeah. Which I thought was a great twist. If you told me a year ago, I would hear the terms Mako and Zindi in the next Star Trek movie. I would have laughed in your face, (laughs) but they, they tied it all together. And I thought that was a great Easter egg. It really ties into the prime timeline and it references enterprise, which we got a little bit into star Trek into darkness. Like I was tickled uh, when, you know, on Admiral Marcus's desk, we saw the model ship of the Mm -hmm. NX one, but this was like bland, like Mako Zindi Romulan war. I mean, come on. I really love that. And then to wrap up the movie, the crew celebrates Kirk's birthday 
at Starbase Yorktown, where the captain declines a promotion to assume command of the Starbase, choosing to remain a captain. Spock, inspired by the adventures that Spock Prime had during his life in Starfleet, and Spock opens up Spock Prime's belongings, Mm -hmm. and he opens up a picture, and we see the picture of the original crew from Star Trek V, Mm-hmm. And I I admit I shed a couple tears when I saw that. <laughs> like that was a very touching moment. Right. And it I very it, it respected I think that was the best Easter egg at all because we saw the prime timeline cast and it kind of informs Kelvin Spock. It it informs him of maybe their paths in the future, what they'll look like. And that they're friends for many, many years to come, that they're a family. And I think that's why Spock wants to stay with Starfleet. It's because of Spock Prime. Yeah. So he does elect to remain with the crew, and he resumes his relationship with Uhura. Uh, Scotty presents Jayla with an acceptance letter into Starfleet Academy, courtesy of a few strings pulled by Kirk. And as Kirk and Spock look out of a massive window at the construction of a new Constitution-class starship, McCoy questions whether or not they really should go back into space. We see a time-lapse sequence that shows the rapid construction and completion of the starship and its deployment into space, the primary hull proudly displaying the name and registry, USS Enterprise, NCC 1701A. And it seems clear that the mission of the Enterprise and her crew will continue. It's awesome. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we kind of knew we were going to get a new Enterprise, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And they they kind of hinted, you didn't know at the beginning of the movie, but they hinted that this new starship had better sensors and just was mm-hmm. a more updated version of... Well, maybe not of a Constitution-class starship, but an updated ship. Yeah, and there's actually... I I have to look at that movie again, Uh but there were definitely some changes with the Enterprise-A. I noticed a few from our our brief glimpse. Right, and actually that will be brought up later, some uh, issues I have. Well, let's let's get into it. So, uh, like we said, the Franklin. So this comes from uh, Dylan Highsmith, one of the lead picture editors from Star Trek Beyond. And this quote here is an excerpt from uh, trekcore.com. Check them out. A great website. Mm -hmm. If you want the official explanation of the Franklin, its warp factor, it was a Mako ship or a United Earth Starfleet ship that housed Mako personnel at times. That uh, predates the NX-01. When the United Federation of Planet Starfleet is formed, Mako is disbanded, and the ship was reclassified as a Starfleet ship with the USS identifier. The ship is then lost in Earth's 2160s. It was important to everyone that the ship, like Edison, predate the Federation, that thematically the ship mirrored an earlier time in history and served as a bridge in design between then and the NX-01, Doug Jung and Simon Pegg may have worked up something on an official launch date, but if they did, it never made it to script or screen. Either way, it predates the NX-01 
and was reclassified after the Unification of Planets is formed. And I totally buy that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it works with the timeline. We can basically consider it a prime universe design as well. Mm-hmm. So it it all works for me. Yeah. I had no problems with it. I like it. So there are a few Easter eggs we mentioned before. Kirk says, I ripped my shirt again <laughs> after the encounter with the Tenaxi. Kirk's birthday scene is a callback to the Wrath of Khan. Kirk's log entry saying it's the 966th day on the job, which is a reference to September 1966. The Franklin is named after the director's father, Frank Lynn. <laughs> the Franklin's registry, 326, is Leonard Nimoy's birthday of March 26th. Uh, there's a line where Scotty says, uh, that refers to the giant green hand <laughs> from the original series episode who mourns for Adonis when speculating about the disappearance of the Franklin. I I laughed in the theater when I heard that for the yeah. first time. I, I chuckled. That, I knew instantly what that was. And you actually see the green hand in the credits. Oh, really? I missed it. I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah, you actually see it in one part in the in the in the credits. Uh, I have to rewatch this. Yeah. Uh, Chekhov explains that Scotch was invented by a little old lady in Moscow. And he's telling that in Kirk's birthday scene. And God, the makeup on the alien chick that he was talking to was insane. She looked like a big, like shell crustacean head. Yeah. And that was insane. Like the makeup for the aliens in this movie was crazy. Really yeah, and like good. You, and like you said, there were 50 aliens in this movie. For 50 years of Star Trek. Yeah. Unfortunately, no Andorians that I saw. Mm. I, I didn't see any Andorians. So that, that was sad. Uh, Mako, Zindi, Romulan Wars mentioned, all callbacks to Enterprise. Uh, Simon Pegg said that Carol Marcus was doing early research for the Genesis Project during the events of Beyond. I actually listened to the Engage podcast today uh, at work with Simon Pegg. It's a great interview. Everyone should check it out. And I really respect Simon Pegg for writing this movie because he really respects the Star Trek franchise. And in that interview, he even says that Star Trek is meant to be a television series and that he's really excited for the new TV series. Nice. And also, I recommend, they also interviewed Doug Young before Simon Pegg's interview. So the Engage podcast interviewed both of them. Uh, So there's a lot of great tidbits in there. And finally, the film closes with the words, in loving memory of Leonard Nimoy, and a few seconds later, uh, for Anton. Very powerful stuff. Yeah. So thoughts for myself, This is basically an episode that was made into a movie, done better than Insurrection, uh, but ironically had the same type of twist reveal at the end. Kral is really a human Starfleet captain slash Mako seeking revenge in the sauna, or really the Baku seeking revenge. I love the opening scene with the little little guys there. This lack of development of the Kral character, I wish we saw more. Yeah of him. And uh, there was there was hints of a backstory because Jayla's 
uh, Father's Killer was one of the alien dudes, and mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of talk of that. But, the, I mean, their fight was epic, but the whole, ah, oh, you killed my father kind of came out of nowhere to me. Yeah, and I guess they cut out <laughs> like 20 <laughs> minutes from this movie. This movie would have been a lot longer if they put all this in, because it's like two hours, this movie. It's, it's I hope crazy. we get an extended cut. That would be awesome if, if they could do that. So why are people following Crawl, risking their lives? How does he pro Oh, how does the life pro prolonging technology work? And uh, how does it alter his uh, physiology? Uh, so those are the kind of questions I have. Yeah, I think they need to explain a little bit more about this ancient ultimate uh, civilization mm -hmm. uh, that has these artifacts. It seems like even to me, it was, it was ironic in a bad way that, you know, that crawl hates a, an organization like Federation of planets, where there's a whole bunch of people coming and working together yet. He's using a whole bunch of drone ships and technology and other people to come together and destroy the Federation. Like he's, he's basically creating his own anti-Federation. Uh, and so I wish I did like his motivation. Like I can understand him, you know, being this longtime earth Starfleet war veteran um, and, you know, coming out of the horrors of the Romulan wars and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the first peaceful mission of exploration and he crash lands and, you know, years go by and he's not, you know, he just feels abandoned. And I do wish that there was more backstory with his past members of his crew. Cause I think that's what those other aliens were supposed to be. They were just other mutated versions yeah. of his crew. Those other two, like that female was yeah. one of his crew members. And, uh, that other guy that Jayla is fighting is exactly. one of his crew members. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's weird. Why does this, technology affect them in different ways you know why did each of them look different you know one is one what? guy what is why does crawl turn into a reptile lizard dude while crawla or whatever her name was kayla or whoever why does she turn into like some fish looking thing well i i gather it's because they start to turn into the people that they're taking the life force from Okay, I can see like, that. Like, that's why Kral was turning to look more Back human. into human? Okay. Yeah, because he was taking the life force from humans. And it d they did say that they took other crews, not just the Enterprise, whoever crash-landed there. I found it a little bit too convenient that Ultimate and the Nebula was so close to Starbase Yorktown. Like, yeah. you'd think Yorktown would do a little bit more research in their neighborhood before setting up shop there. Right. Yeah, I mean, like an unexplored nebula where you don't know what's in there. Yeah, yeah, come on. That's probably okay, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a movie. I know things have got to be a little bit more condensed for time and all that stuff. Um, I get yeah. it. But those problems didn't annoy, though, like those small issues didn't annoy me as much as the issues in the last two films. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. Like I into darkness just pissed me off in the end. And that's why I went into beyond really skeptical, but 
with mm-hmm. Simon Pegg and uh, Doug Young and Justin Lin, who is a Star Trek fan. He is a Trekkie. He grew up with the series. And all three of them working together on this, I think they created a very fun, entertaining, and action-packed Star Trek movie. And in fact, I think this is the best out of the three Kelvin timeline movies. Mm. I had the most fun with this one. Now, uh, so what would you rate this? Uh, To me, I would rate this uh, 9 out of 10 Delta Shields. Okay. Uh, I would give it 8 out of 10. So Uh, pretty good. pretty, Pretty darn good. Now, for someone who's not a Star Trek fan, right? Now, uh, I went with uh, my wife and my best friend. Now, my okay. best friend is not a uh, he likes Star Trek. He likes Star Trek Voyager, actually. Um, all right. <laughs> well, he can't be all that bad. <laughs> uh, but he he didn't get this movie, and it, like it it was just confusing to him, and he liked the 2009 Star Trek film better. Okay. What 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 confused him? Uh I think he just had a hard time following the plot of the movie and he didn't understand why the swarm chips were exploding. So I had to explain to him that's because the They explained it in the movie. Yeah, out maybe he dozed off. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean this is definitely a movie for Trekkies. Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I I went with my fiance. Mm-hmm. Uh, she appreciates Star Trek. Uh, she enjoys all of the Kelvin timeline movies. Uh, she had a blast with this movie. She thought it was excellent. I also went with our friend Doug, who's been on the show. Uh, yep. re- relatively, uh, I mean, he's, he's known of Star Trek all of his life, uh, but a relatively... Uh, newcomer when it comes to the fandom he thoroughly enjoyed the film and also at the same showing my friend zach and co-host at uh, ranger command he's a trekkie like me and he loved all the same references that i got you know he loved the mako and romulan war references and the zindi so i think this movie works for all levels uh, just in my experience i think I think if you're a new fan who's just seen the Kelvin JJ movies, that it fits in line with all these movies. Like you're still seeing these characters. I think it's just taking a step up a notch in story and action. I like that it, well, that's the thing. This beyond was the real test because it's not an origin story. It's not a rehash of Khan. Beyond was really the first like original story in the JJ Kelvin. It didn't rely on anything in the past aside from a few references here and there. But even without those references, I think the movie would still have worked. But because of those references, there is a deeper uh, motivation behind Crawl's character. Right. Okay. So yeah, I think this movie works for old truckies and and new ones so let's move on to the subspace channel so let's open up hailing frequencies and figure out (laughs) uh 
<laughs> so, <laughs> for those who don't know, I have a soundboard now, so I can just play play random sounds. So do it again. Kind of, do it again. I'll do it, I'll do it again. Ready? Yep. Perfect. <laughs> so now, now that subspace channels have been opened twice, uh, mm -hmm. what is the question? Abrams named the Kelvin, and Lynn named the Franklin. Frank Lynn. If you could name a ship in Star Trek, what would it be and why? So, Eric, if you could name a ship, what would it be and why? Um, I actually named the ship. I created one uh, when I was coming up with like my own side story back in high school. I called it the USS Resistance. Okay. And it was a ship designed to be a, a board buster type ship. And so it was an NX class uh, resistance class ship. Uh, cool. Yeah. So I actually off and on the past few years, I've, I got to get back to it, but I actually started doing a master systems display for the resistance. Oh, cool. Um, you can actually see it on my deviant art. Uh, there's little previews here and there. I, I really have to finish that. But yeah, so I I would call it the resistance. Nice. Because resistance is not futile. Oh, snap. How about you? Uh, so calling back to what I was saying at the beginning of the, the show, when we were talking about the discovery, my ship would be called the USS Raptor, which mm. is, Raptor means bird of prey. And this ship is a combination of Federation and Klingon technologies. So it's a hybrid. Yeah. And they actually, when I came up with the story of this ship, they were in the M33 uh, galaxy, I want to say. It might be wrong, but it was, it was the Whirlpool galaxy. Yeah. Uh, and they were fighting these uh, Borg-like aliens uh, up in there. Cool. Up in there? Yeah. Up in there. <laughs> so let's see what you guys said. Here are a few of the answers that we have selected from the various social media networks we posted this question to. Thanks to everyone who has answered, and if we didn't get to read your answer this time, try again on our next So Space Channel's question. You got literally hundreds of answers for this, didn't you? Hundreds. Uh, Where the hell did you post this to? Uh, so this is, I posted uh, to a Facebook group called, I think it's just called Star Trek Fans. Okay. Uh, I think it's an open group, but you have to be accepted into it. Right, right. Uh, in order to post anything. And, and your posts have to be approved before you can post. Mm -hmm. So there's some interesting conversations going on over there. You can go check them out, facebook.com, and just search Star Trek fans. Okay. So first, let's let's start with the Facebook. And uh, Jimmy uh, Sauders uh, says, USS Challenger NCC-1986 in honor of the shuttle explosion. Interesting choice. Mm. Thomas E. Wheat said the USS Robert Hooke, a science vessel. He started a lot of Sir Isaac Newton's research, just like the ability to see it to completion. Next, we have Edison Bruce, who says, 
USS Elrod NCC-1361. When I switched high schools back in 10th grade, I joined first robotics team 1361, and our first robot was named Elrod. Despite my time in college afterward, the majority of my engineering and design skills were forged in that cramped classroom where a misfit group of kids at a ghetto school in Colorado decided to build a robot and take it to competition. I've actually started writing a fan novel with the ship named as a science vessel taking place between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. So far, I haven't put any of it online yet. I'm not sure if uh, there would be much interest. And I replied to him, I would totally want to read uh, his story. Absolutely. That sounds, that's a great reason to name that ship. And I would very much like to read that. Uh, Dan Lamukul says in <laughs> Star Trek Online, any of my ships are named after my mother. I got into Star Trek Online when she was on her way out, and I was her caretaker. So I've always been partial to the USS Dolores Ann, NCC 90454, uh, for uh, September 4th, 1954, when she was born. Yes, uh, very, uh, very touching story there, and uh, good choice, Dan. Uh, next, we have Gary R. Gutierrez, who says the USS Godzilla, because it would be the biggest, baddest ship in the fleet, and its main weapon would look like Godzilla's fiery breath. I'm all for it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, David Jarrett said the USS Diamondback, because I live in West Texas, and the most ferocious animal in West Texas, besides our mother's, are the Diamondback Rattlesnake. That's good choice, David. That's a good choice. <laughs> I like yeah. the besides our mother's comment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's good to in inject some humor every now and then in these, oh, yeah. uh, in these questions, answers. From Twitter, we have at 005, the Indianapolis. It's where I'm from and was the ship that delivered the bomb, as Quint would say. Okay. Yep. On Google Plus, uh, Leroy Broxiak said the Gagarin after the first person in space and the Roskova after the famous Russian pilot. I think the Gagarin was actually a shuttle on the Enterprise D. It might have been, yeah. Uh, and finally, we have Siddharth Buller. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right there. Uh, how about the USS Yelchin? Uh, because, you know, I thought of naming it after Roddenberry, uh, Kelly, mm -hmm. Nimoy, and a few other legends who are no longer with us, but I like the sound of Yelchin better than the others. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a Russian-type starship or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a cool-sounding cool name. Yeah, the Yelchin. All right. Do you have a sound effect for what puts your quantum state into flux? Um, the closest I have is, uh, this, I guess. Whoa, we're running into some subspace turbulence. So, Aaron, what puts your quantum state into flux? I really like, oh my gosh, just hit puberty. 
Uh, I, I really like... Today I am a man. So I really like the more classic design that the Enterprise A takes in, in Star Trek Beyond. Oh, okay. Uh, that being said, what class are these Enterprises in the Kelvin universe? Uh, the 1701 of this universe and the 1701A can't be the same class and the ship can't be called a refit. All they share in common is the general shape, which can be said about a majority of Starfleet vessels. All that we can gauge from the 1701's dedication plate uh, plaque is that it's uh, of a general general classification, starship class, the same as the Prime Universe. Memory Alpha states that the view screen of the USS Vengeance identifies the uh, 1701 as a Constitution-class vessel. So in canon, the 1701 is definitely a Constitution-class ship. Would this make the 1701A a Constitution Type 2, or something else altogether? Hmm... Well, in the Prime Universe, the Enterprise was still a Constitution class. It was just a refit. Right, but they explain that where they, like, it's the same ship, but they just, like, rebuilt it. This is a completely new ship. A completely new ship, and it, the dimensions are different. Uh, Are they? Like, where, where... Let me see if I can find you a picture of... I, I need a picture, because it went by too fast. It went by too fast in the movie, and I only saw the movie once. Too fast, too furious. Um, oh, where did I see this uh, rendering? Check this out. This isn't the refit, but this is a cool... This is some cool cutaway shit Okay. For, for Beyond. Check that out. Oh, yeah, this is what I saw. You can see in here they have the motorcycle pointed out on the... Yeah, uh, yeah I saw that. Yeah. God, I, I really like the Franklin. No, it's a very cool design. And I from what I was reading, they were going to... The, the nacelles were going to be slung under. Yeah, yeah. But when the script change came, to when it flies off, they needed to... Uh, change that i went to x and yep. they updated their abrams verse classes so maybe okay. that's it the new enterprise design maybe this is it yeah so the they have a side profile of the a on that enterprise a type mm-hmm. new ship design only basic features in common what is not classified as Enterprise type or even Constitution class here at EAS. Most notably, the neck is no longer placed in the middle of the engineering hall. It also looks like the neck is blended into the engineering hall now without the previous flange. The nacelle pylons appear to be straighter and thicker. The nacelles are more conventional without the curved engine hoods. They're also farther apart than previously. Finally, the slope of the saucer edge is not as steep anymore, and the saucer may be smaller in diameter or thicker. So I saw a rendering of of it. I just don't remember where. I think it was on Twitter. I don't remember who posted it, though. Let me see these side by side. Oh, I guess there is no rendering for that. Yeah, there's no clickable thing, so I can't see a side by side. 
I guess um, the movie is just too new. Yeah. Uh, but someone posted. Yeah, but where? Oh, man. Damn it. Did you open up the images, the little screen caps that they had? Oh, I, sh- I guess I should do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's more blended. It's still hard to tell. Yeah. The saucer does look thicker, though. And yeah, the nacelles do look straighter. It was just, it was so short. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. So I think the the new Enterprise looks more like our Constitution class ship. Okay. Uh, from, the, well, our, <laughs> the Prime Universe uh, right. uh, design. So, but I mean, we already have the Constitution set in stone, I guess, in the in the Kelvin universe. So I would like to know if this gets its own classification somewhere mm. down the line. So that's that's what put my quantum state in flux. Now I do like the design. I like it better than from what I've mm-hmm. seen, I like it better than uh the Enterprise that just got destroyed. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good thing. Yeah. No, it, it looks good. Definitely. So I think that about does it for our episode on Star Trek Beyond. Woohoo! <laughs> so, Eric, if we were to find you on the interwebs, where would we do so? You can find me online at TrekkieB47. You can also find me on my other podcast, uh, Ranger Command Power Hour, a Power Rangers podcast, uh, Ranger Command PH on Twitter and Ranger Command Power Hour on Facebook and Instagram. Nice. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Nova Charter. Uh, so, thanks for listening. Live Woo. long and prosper. <laughs> you have been listening to the Starfleet Escape podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where you can catch a new episode every other Monday. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com.